0: High up in the Andes Mountains, at 15,000 feet above sea level, in a tiny run-down but still active mining town called San Vicente, the lonely mountain winds whistle past the sagging adobe wall and low archway of an old cemetery that for years has been abandoned, the entrance chained to prevent curiosity seekers from entering. From the Bolivian capital of La Paz, the town is reachable only by a 14-hour train ride, and three more hours by jeep over treacherous terrain. The town today is only really known for two things, one, as being a remote but very productive silver mine, and two, for a shootout that occurred in early November of 1908. An epic gun battle between two men, both of them gringos who were suspected of robbing a mine payroll and the detachment from a small army unit that had finally caught up with them at a small boarding house in the town. The Regiment of Armed Policia were there to recover a payroll worth about $90,000 in today's money on behalf of the Aramayo Mining Company. The miners' payroll having been stolen at gunpoint November fourth, nineteen 1908, by two tall English-speaking men. The payroll had been packed into saddlebags and was being carried by Burroughs in the custody of a man named Carlos Peros. After the robbery, Peros returned to the nearest mining camp and sent a telegram to alert the mining company of the robbery, and a unit of armed soldiers began the chase. The bandits were, at first, headed for the Argentine border, but for unknown reasons, turned and headed back toward San Vicente. Three days later, A pair of Americans suspected of being the bandits were reported to be staying in a small boarding house. The owner, whose name was Casasola, became suspicious of his two foreign lodgers. A mule they had in their possession was from the Aramayo Mine, identifiable from the mine company's brand on the mule's left flank. Casasola left his house and notified a nearby telegraph officer. We in turn notified a small Bolivian Army Cavalry Unit stationed nearby, the Abaroa Regiment. The unit dispatched three soldiers under the command of Captain Justo Cancha to San Vicente, where they notified the local authorities. On the evening of November 6th, the lodging house was surrounded by the soldiers, the police chief, the local mayor and some of his officials, with the intent to arrest the Aramayo robbers. When the soldiers approached the house, the bandits opened fire, killing one of the soldiers and wounding another. A gunfight then ensued. The mayor heard a man inside the house scream three times. Soon afterward, two successive shots were fired from inside the house. The authorities cautiously entered the house the next morning, whereupon they found two bodies, both with numerous bullet wounds to the arms and legs. The man, assumed to be Longabaugh had a bullet wound in the forehead and the man, thought to be Cassidy, had a bullet hole in the temple. The local police report speculated that, judging from the positions of the bodies, Cassidy had probably shot the fatally wounded Longabaw to put him out of his misery, just before killing himself. In the following investigation by the Tupiza police, the bandits were identified as the men who robbed the Aramayo payroll transport. But the Bolivian authorities didn't know their real names, nor could they positively identify them. The bodies were buried at the small San Vicente Cemetery near the grave of a German miner named Gustav Zimmer. The soldiers recovered the stolen money and left, taking notes on what had happened for their reports and leaving the townspeople to bury the two gringos, which they did the following day, having no money or desire to provide coffins or a marker but they did erect a crude cross. When historical researchers Ann Meadows and Dan Buck arrived in San Vicente, having received permission from the town to exhume the grave thought to belong to the dead gringos, they were skeptical at first. But as the cautious dig proceeded, they came upon two skeletons, both fully clothed, laid end to end, and apparently killed by gunshot wounds. A portion of the remains, including the skulls, were sent to Clyde Snow, a forensic pathologist, known for identifying the remains of Joseph Mengele, known Nazi death house doctor. Snow's job would be to try to find a DNA match between the remains found and that of relatives of Robert Parker and Henry Alonzo Longabaugh, known to most people as the legendary outlaws, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Records found by Buck and Meadows indicate that the shorter of the two men, which would have been Butch, killed the taller man, Sundance, with a shot to the face, and then killed himself with a shot to the temple. The taller one was much more severely wounded than the shorter man. Clyde Snow was not able to match the DNA of distant relatives to that from the sample, and for that reason, the legend surrounding the fate of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid continues unabated to this day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. It's time for a story from the Old West, one of my favorite topics. And Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, A Place, and the Wild Bunch is a topic I've been waiting to cover for a long time. The Wild Bunch was a well-managed group of outlaws who were all looking at the noose or at the least stage prison if they got caught. They all knew each other, and they had hideouts in numerous natural canyons with names like Robber's Roost, Brown's Hole, and the Hole in the Wall. The story of Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, and Etta Place holds at least two of the biggest mysteries of the Old West. First, did Butch and Sundance really die in a shootout with the law after robbing a bank in Bolivia? Many say no, that one or the other was seen alive and living under assumed identity back in the States years later. And at a place, the biggest mystery of all. No one knows who she really was, where she came from, how she met Sundance, and what happened to her after traveling to South America. Some said she was shot, others that she married a rich man, others say she was Josie Bassett, and still others have many other ideas. In parts one and two, we'll give you the backgrounds of Butch, Sundance, and Etta Place and let you try to figure out the mystery based on all the theories that are out there and the questions surrounding the fate of all three, including the real identity of Etta Place. Butch Cassidy associated with a broad selection of criminals, most notably his closest friend, William Ellsworth L. Z. Lay. Then it was Harvey, Kid Curry, Logan. Ben Kilpatrick, Will News Carver, Laura Bullion, and George Flatnose Curry, who collectively became the nucleus of the so-called Wild Bunch. The gang assembled sometime after Cassidy's release from prison in 1896. He was the one who put it all together and took its name from the Doolin-Dalton Gang, which was also known as the Wild Bunch. So that you know it, and we can say we told you, Robber's Roost was a canyon hideout in southeastern Utah. That hideout was considered ideal because of the rough terrain that kept it well hidden and hard to reach unless you knew where you were going. And any lawman would have been crazy to try to get in there wearing a star or not. It was easily defended, difficult to navigate without detection, and excellent when the gang needed a month or longer to rest and lie low following a robbery. It was while hiding out at Robber's Roost That Elsie Lay and Butch Cassidy first formed the Wild Bunch Gang. The Wild Bunch Gang developed contacts inside Utah that gave them easy access to supplies of fresh horses and beef, most notably the ranch owned by outlaw sisters Ann Bassett and Josie Bassett. They fenced stolen cattle for the boys and made themselves wealthy in the process. The gang constructed cabins inside Robbers Roost to help shield them from the harsh winters. There they stored weapons, horses, chickens, and cattle. Pursuing lawmen of the day never discovered the site of the hideout, or if they did, they never tried to get in through those narrow canyons where they could be picked off from any angle. The outlaws held each other to strict confidentiality regarding its location. There were only five women known to have ever been allowed inside Robber's Roost. Ann and Josie Bassett, the Sundance Kid's girlfriend, Etta Place, Maud Davis, one of L. Z. Lay's girlfriends, who would later become his wife, and gang member Laura Bullion, nicknamed the Thorny Rose by the gang. And she was definitely an outlaw, busy making contacts for stolen cattle, forging checks, and taking part in what is still called the Great Northern Train Robbery with Butch and the Boys. She was originally a part of Black Jack Ketchum's gang, then switched to the Wild Bunch. For several years, she was romantically involved with outlaw Ben Kilpatrick, also known as the Tall Texan, a bank and train robber, and an acquaintance of her father, who had been an outlaw as well. In 1901, Bullion was convicted of robbery and sentenced to five years in prison for her participation in that great northern train robbery. The names Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid have become legendary, thanks in great part to a movie that came out in 1969 that immortalized both of them. They definitely were thieves, and fairly successful at it. They had their ups and downs, and for quite a while after their train and bank robberies in the States, they were living large down south, which is where they escaped when the Pinkertons, private detectives hired by the railroad companies they were robbing, got too close, and I mean way down south, in Bolivia and Ecuador. They say that the two got a little greedy while enjoying the country down there with Etta, and that they tried to rob a bank in Bolivia figuring the police were all taking siestas. But they weren't, and Butch and Sundance got cornered and got shot all to ribbons. That's the most popular story accepted out there. When Academy Award-winning screenwriter William Goldman first came across the story of Butch Cassidy in the late 50s, he thought it was one of the best stories he'd ever seen. So he dug in and researched it on and off for eight years before sitting down to write the screenplay. Goldman once said, the whole reason I wrote it. There is that famous line that Scott Fitzgerald wrote, who was one of my heroes. There are no second acts in American lives. When I read about Cassidy and longoball and the super posse coming after them, that's phenomenal material. They ran to South America and lived there for eight years. And that was what thrilled me. They had a second act. They were more legendary in South America than they'd been in the Old West. It's a great story. Those two guys and that pretty girl. And if you look at the pictures, Etta Place was a knockout. Going down to South America and all that stuff, it just seems to me it's a wonderful piece of material. The characters' flight to South America caused one executive to reject the script, as it was then unusual in Western films for the protagonist to flee. They're supposed to get caught and shoot it out. According to Goldman, when he first wrote the script and sent it out for consideration, Only one studio wanted to buy it, and that was with the proviso that the two lead characters did not flee to South America. When Goldman protested that that was what had happened, the studio head responded, I don't give a shit. All I know is John Wayne don't run away. Goldman rewrote the script. I didn't change it more than a few pages, and subsequently found that every studio wanted it. The role of Sundance was initially offered to Jack Lemmon, whose production company JML had produced the film Cool Hand Luke in 1967, starring Newman. And that's the movie in which hard-ass ex-Marine George Kennedy popularized reflector sunglasses in his role as the crew chief on a road gang, and suddenly everybody had to own a pair. Lemmon, however, turned down the role. He didn't like riding horses and he felt he'd already played too many aspects of the Sundance Kid's character before. Other actors considered for the role of Sundance were Steve McQueen and Warren Beatty, who both turned it down, with Beatty claiming that the film was too similar to Bonnie and Clyde. According to Goldman, McQueen and Paul Newman both read the scripts at the same time and agreed to do the film. But McQueen eventually backed out of the film due to disagreements with Newman, The two actors would eventually team up in the 1974 disaster film, The Towering Inferno. Anyway, Goldman made the movie, and forever moved Butch and Sundance to legend status. And the movie became the top grocer in 1970. And B.J. Thomas still talks about hoping for another hit like Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, which was used in a scene where Catherine Ross and Paul Newman were tooling around on their bicycles like they didn't have a worry in the world. And Catherine Ross, by the way, is one of the few Hollywood types that still believes in long-term marriages. She married gravelly-voiced Sam Elliott, who has done a bunch of westerns, and who, incidentally, was just getting started when Butch and Sundance was made and played card player number two as an extra in one of the bar scenes in that movie. It would take another movie a few years down the road before the two would get together. And what started out as a little rumor that maybe Butch and Sundance somehow survived it all, started to spread. And people started digging, literally, for some sign of what really did happen. They're still digging for DNA today, or at least as recently as 2017. And the stories that have survived of people who swear they met Butch years after his untimely death keep popping up from every corner. Well, after a while, it just gets too good to ignore. So here at 1001 Heroes, we decided it was high time to do some digging as well. And we've got a bunch of stories that we're going to let you sort out. Finally, a footnote. Director Sam Peckinpah, in 1969, upon hearing that a movie about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was gearing up and that they were hiring top talents, thought he could cash in on the action with a film called The Wild Bunch, which had nothing to do with the Butch Cassidy Sundance Kid, Kid Curry Wild Bunch, But it did have a good script, and as it turned out, some top talent, including William Holden and a host of others. This movie ended up being one of the best westerns ever made, as well. And, last footnote, this wild bunch sort of borrowed the name from the Dalton gang after they got all shot up in Minnesota. Times were rough on bad guys in those days. So, saddle up, because this is going to be a ride to remember. Time for a short commercial break from one of our sponsors, and then we'll get moving. We'll begin by introducing Butch, Sundance, and Etta Place, starting with the Sundance kid. Real name, Henry Longabaugh. Longabaugh was born in Montclair, Pennsylvania, in 1867. The son of Pennsylvania natives, Hosiah and Annie G. Place Longabaugh. He was the youngest of five children. His older siblings were Elwood, Samana, Emma, kind of sounds like Etta, doesn't it? And Harvey. Longabaugh was of mostly English and German ancestry and was also part Welsh. At age 15, he traveled westward in a covered wagon with his cousin George. In 1887, Longabaugh stole a gun, a horse, and a saddle from a ranch in Sundance, Wyoming, which is where he took the name. While attempting to flee, he was captured by authorities, and was convicted and sentenced to 18 months in the Sundance, Wyoming jail by Judge William L. McGinnis. After his release, he went back to working as a ranch hand, and in 1891, as a 25-year-old, he worked at the Bar U Ranch in what is today Alberta, Canada, which was one of the largest commercial ranches of the time. Longabau was suspected of taking part in a train robbery in 1892 and a bank robbery in 1897 with five other men he became associated at some point with the Wild Bunch, which included his famous partner, Robert Leroy Parker, better known as Butch Cassidy. Although Longabaugh was reportedly fast with a gun, and often referred to as a gunfighter, he was not known to have killed anyone prior to a later shootout in Bolivia, in which he and Parker were alleged to have been killed. He became better known in today's memory than another outlaw member of the gang dubbed Kid. Kid Curry, real name Harvey Logan, who killed numerous men while with the gang, but Kid Curry was as bad as they come, and definitely well known by the law in the 1890s, if not the public 100 years later. Longabaugh did participate in a shootout with lawmen who trailed a gang led by George Curry, Kid Curry's brother, to the Hole-and-Wall hideout in Wyoming, and was thought to have wounded two lawmen in that shootout. With that exception, though, his verified involvement in shootouts is unknown. Not that it matters, but a number of historians have tried to say that Butch and Sundance really weren't killers. They could have killed a number of bank and train guards, and they didn't. More on them to come. Etta Place, born 1878, no time of death known, no parents known, was a companion of the American outlaws Butch Cassidy, real name, as mentioned, Robert Leroy Parker and the Sundance Kid. Principally the companion of Longabaw, little is known about her. Both her origin and her fate remain shrouded in mystery today, and there's a lot of people who would love to know where that relationship started and where she started. The Pinkerton Detective Agency described her in 1906 as having quote, classic good looks, 27 or 28 years old, 5'4 to 5'5 in height, weighing between 110 and 115 pounds, with a medium build and brown hair. According to a memorandum from the Pinkerton Detective Agency dated July 29, 1902, she was said to be from Texas. And in another Pinkerton document dated 1906, she is described as being 27 to 28 years old, placing her birth between 1878 and 1879. A hospital staff record from Denver, where she received treatment in May of 1900, reports her age then as 22 or 23, putting her birth year at 1877 or 78. Even her real name is a mystery. As mentioned earlier, Place was the maiden surname of Longabaugh's mother, Annie Place, and she is recorded in various sources as Mrs. Harry Longabaugh or Mrs. Harry A. Place. In the one instance where she's known to have signed her name, she did so as... Mrs. Ethel Place. The Pinkertons called her Ethel, Eva, and Rita before finally settling on Etta for its wanted posters. And she had them. Her name, they figured, may have come from Etta after she moved to South America where Spanish speakers couldn't pronounce Ethel. In February 1901, Etta Place accompanied Longabaugh, who was living large after some bank robberies to New York City where at Tiffany's Jewelers, they purchased a lapel watch and stick pin and posed for the now-famous De Young portrait at a studio in Union Square on Broadway. And I'll post that one at Facebook slash 1001Heroes for you. It's one of only two known images of her. They knew the law was one step behind them, so at some point they decided to try and lose them and head for South America. On February twentieth, nineteen 1901, she sailed with longoball and Parker, who was now posing as James Ryan, her fictional brother, aboard the British ship Herminius, for Buenos Aires. There she settled with the two outlaws on a cattle ranch, which they purchased near Cholila, in the Chubut province of west-central Argentina. Argentina was booming in cattle sales, and Butch had figured to be a good place to escape the law, make some money, and try and live their life. Under a new 1884 law, they were granted 15,000 acres of adjacent land to develop, 2,500 of which belonged to Place, who has the distinction of being the first woman in Argentina to acquire land under the new act, as land ownership previously had been almost the exclusive preserve of men. On March 3, 1902, Edda and Longaball returned to New York City on the SS Soldier Prince, The Pinkertons noting that they went because she was missing her family, but they couldn't get any info on the family. On April 2nd, they registered at a Mrs. Thompson's rooming house in New York City. They then toured Coney Island and visited his family, originally from Montclair, Pennsylvania, but by then living in Atlantic City, New Jersey, not far away. They then traveled to Dr. Pierce's Invalid and Tourist Hotel, located at 663 Main Street in Buffalo, New York. And this is where it gets really interesting. This was a richly lavished hotel that offered rooms where women, after an operation from any one of Dr. Pierce's 17 hired surgeons, could recuperate. Dr. Pierce wasn't a real doctor by today's standards, which would label him as a quack. He had graduated from the Eclectic College of Medicine in Cincinnati in 1862. And you can guess by that name what that degree was worth. He quickly invented formulas for patent medicines that dealt with a wide variety of women's diseases. Ovarian cancer, digestive illness, fatigue, headache, hysteria, female weakness, gynecology, obstetrics, nervous disorders, childbirth, and menstruation. And he made a fortune from unregulated advertising and sales of those patent medicines. He had built a warehouse and production facility behind the hotel and surgery center. And by 1888, he was grossing over $1 million a year from the sales of Dr. Pierce's smartweed and pleasant pellets. This wealth lifted him to the State Senate in New York and then the U.S. Congress. Dr. Pierce had a similar facility in London, and I can't help but compare him in many ways to our top ripper suspect, Dr. Francis Tumblety, who also was from New York, who also specialized in working on female body parts, who also got very wealthy from a patent medicine business, and who had a special penchant for uteruses. In the late 1800s, during the Victorian era, topics like syphilis, venereal disease, and abortion just weren't discussed. It was taboo. Women who worked in the world's oldest profession generally didn't live long for that reason. And it's suspected by most researchers that Etta did work in that profession. And that was how Butch and Sundance met her. For women who had access to money, treatment and abortion centers were out there, usually disguised as medical practices that offered cures for what they called women's weaknesses, and surgery to correct problems with women's uteruses. They also offered prescription pills, which they touted as being cure-alls for everything from migraines to menstrual cramps. These so-called doctors, and some had legitimate degrees, many others didn't, got wealthy fast, advertising far and wide in newspapers in an industry that wasn't being regulated. And some became the equivalent of millionaires and billionaires today. There's little doubt that when Sundance and Etta checked into Thompson's boarding house in New York City on April 2nd, 1902, they saw Dr. Pierce's ads offering to cure women's maladies and decided that they'd make a visit before they left the States. And Dr. Pierce's invalid hotel, if you survived a surgery, for instance, removing a fetus, would leave you an invalid for at least a few months. So Etta was getting the best of care. Note they arrived in New York City April 2nd, 1902. Three months and eight days later, After she had had time to recuperate, they boarded the steamer Honorius in New York, signed in as Mr. and Mrs. Place, and then Butch, showing his typical sense of humor, signed in as Purser, meaning the man who holds your valuables when you check onto a traveling ship, and Etta signed in as stewardess. They then traveled west, where again they sought medical treatment, this time in Denver, Colorado. This may have been a follow-up checkup for Etta. On August 9th, she was with Longabaugh at the Hotel Europa in Buenos Aires, and on the 15th, she sailed with him aboard the steamer S.S. Chubut to return to their ranch. In the summer of 1904, she made another visit with Longabaugh to the United States, where the Pinkerton Detective Agency traced them to Fort Worth, Texas, and to the St. Louis World Fair, and back to New York again, but failed to arrest them before they returned to Argentina. If you want to find her family, it's likely they were in New York City. On February 14, 1905, two English-speaking bandits, who may have been Parker and Longaball held up the Banco de Terrapaca y Argentino in Rio Gallegos, 700 miles south of Cholila, near the Strait of Magellan. Escaping with a sum that would be worth at least $100,000 U.S. today, the pair vanished north across the bleak Patagonian steppes. On May 1st, 1905, the trio sold the Chonila Ranch because the law was beginning to catch up with them. The Pinkerton Agency had known their location for some time by May of 05, but the rainy season had prevented their assigned agent, Frank DiMaio, from traveling there and making an arrest. Governor Julio Lizana had then issued an arrest warrant, but before it could be executed, Sheriff Edward Humphreys, a Welsh Argentine who was friendly with Parker, and enamored of it a place, tipped them off. The trio fled north to San Carlos de Berlouche where they embarked on a steamer Condor across Lake Necahuahuape and into Chile. However, by the end of that year, they were again back in Argentina. On December 19th, Parker, Longabaugh, Place, and an unknown male took part in the robbery of the Bianco de Nacion in Villa Mercedes, 400 miles west of Buenos Aires. Taking twelve thousand pesos, pursued by armed lawmen, they crossed the Pampas and the Andes and again reached the safety of Chile. On June 30, 1906, Eda Place decided that she had had enough of life on the run and was escorted back to San Francisco by Longabaugh. As far as anyone knows, that was the last time they saw each other. Parker, under the alias James Santiago Maxwell, obtained work at the Concordia Tin Mine in the Santa Vela Cruz range of the central Bolivian Andes, where he was joined by Longobal upon his return. Their main duties included guarding the company payroll. Still wanting to settle down as a respectable rancher, Parker, late in 1907, made an excursion with Longobal to Santa Cruz, a frontier town in Bolivia's eastern savannah. Those who had met at a place claimed the first thing they noticed about her was that she was strikingly pretty, with a very nice smile, and that she was cordial, refined, and an excellent shot with a rifle. She was said to have spoken in an educated manner, and she indicated she was originally from the East Coast, although she never revealed an exact location. Eyewitnesses indicated, years afterward, that Place was one of only five women known to have been allowed into the Wild Bunch hideout at Robbers Roost in southern Utah the other four having been Will Carver's girlfriend Josie Bassett, who was also involved with Parker for a time, Josie's sister and Parker's longtime girlfriend Ann Bassett, El Lay's girlfriend Maud Davis, and gang member Laura Bullion. Etta was speculated to have once married a schoolteacher, and at least one person claimed Place said she was a teacher who abandoned her husband and two children to be with Longabaw. The claim that she met the gang while working as a prostitute has been postulated. Some claim that Place was originally Parker's lover and became involved with Longaball later, having met both while working in a brothel as a prostitute. Both of those claims are possible as members of the Wild Bunch gang, often alternated girlfriends. I can guarantee you that if you can find a photograph or something that will reveal where she was born or how she died you will have discovered one of the holy grails of old west history researchers. It is possible that she met Parker and or in the brothel of Madame Fanny Porter in San Antonio, which was frequented by members of the Wild Bunch gang. Porter was born in England and traveled to the United States around the age of one with her family. By age 15, Madame Fanny Porter was working as a prostitute in San Antonio, Texas. By the age of 20, she had started her own brothel and become extremely popular for having a cordial and sincere attitude, choosing only the most attractive young women as her girls, requiring that her girls practice good hygiene and for maintaining an immaculate personal appearance. Her brothel was located at the corner of Durango and San Saba Streets, better known as the Sporting District. In fact, through Madame Porter's, several gang members met girlfriends who traveled with them, including Kid Curry and Delamore, a prostitute, and Will Carver and Lily Davis. Wild Bunch female gang member Laura Bullion is believed to have worked at the brothel from time to time as well. It has been suggested that Place's real name was Ethel Bishop, who lived at a similar establishment around the corner from Madam Porter's at 212 Concho Street. Somebody's been doing their homework. On the 1900 census, Bishop's occupation was given as an unemployed music teacher, She was 23 then, born in West Virginia in September 1876. The Ethel Bishop hypothesis neatly combines the stories that she was a schoolteacher or that she was a sex worker in one person. Another conjecture is that Etta Place was a cattle rustler named Ann Bassett, who knew and operated with the Wild Bunch at the turn of the 20th century. Both Bassett and Place were attractive women, with very similar facial features body frame, and hair color. Bassett was born in 1878, the same year Place was thought to have been born. Dr. Thomas G. Kyle of the Computer Research Group at Los Alamos National Laboratory, who performed many photographic comparisons for government intelligence agencies, conducted a series of tests on photographs of Etta Place and Ann Bassett. Both had the same scar or cowlick at the top of their forehead. Dr. Kyle concluded, that there could be no reasonable doubt they were the same person. Historian Doris Karen Burton also investigated the lives of both women and published a book in 1992 claiming they were one and the same. However, Bassett's and Place's chronologies do not align. Several documents prove that Bassett was in Wyoming during much of the time when Place was in South America. Bassett was arrested and briefly incarcerated in Utah for rustling cattle in 1903, while Place was in South America with Langebaugh and Parker. Bassett also married her first husband in Utah that year, and therefore could not have been in South America during that time. And since we're discussing Etta Place theories, here are a few more. A once popular theory held that she was Eunice Gray, who for many years operated a bordello in Fort Worth, Texas, and later ran the Waco Hotel there until her death in a fire in January 1962. And you might remember that Etta and Sundance did stop in Fort Worth on one of their return trips from New York. Maybe to see an old friend, maybe a relative. Eunice Gray once told Delbert Willis of the Fort Worth Press, I've lived in Fort Worth since 1901. That is except for the time I had to hightail it out of town. Went to South America for a few years until things settled down. Willis conceded that Gray never claimed to be at a place. He merely made that connection on his own, given the similarities in their ages and the period in which Gray said she went to South America coinciding with Place's time there. Gray was described as a beautiful woman and Willis believed that Place and Gray held a striking resemblance to one another but there were no known photographs of Gray from that period to compare with places. But then, in 2007, amateur genealogist Donna Donnell found Eunice Gray on a 1911 passenger list from Panama. Following that lead, she tracked down Gray's niece, who had two photographs of her, one taken at her high school graduation circa 1896 and another taken in the 1920s. Comparing those photos to places, both agreed that eunice gray was definitely not eda place see how armchair researchers can have a profound effect on history and some fun as well yet another theory posits that place was actually madeline wilson a girl in fanny porter's brothel sleuther tony hayes notes that of the five girls in fanny's boarding house all were born in or around 1878 to 1880 one girl 22-year-old Madeline Wilson appeared in the 1900 census records of Bexar County, Texas, immediately beneath Madame Porter's name. Like Porter, Wilson was listed as being of English birth, immigrating to the United States in 1884 at the age of six. Hayes theorizes that Wilson changed her name, and that her British accent, tempered by 16 years in America, might be described as refined. All traces of Wilson disappeared after the 1900 census after Place and Longabaugh left town. And one note on Madeline Wilson and her appearing in the census records of Bexar County, Texas. Henry Longabaugh, the Sundance kid, had written a friend one time that he had married a girl from Texas. So that's something to consider. And lastly, this clue to check out. Longabaugh's alleged son, Robert Harvey Longabaugh born Feb. 21, 1901, lived to December 18, 1972, claimed years later to be the son of Longabaugh, and he claimed that Etta Place was actually Hazel Tyrone, a half-sister to his mother, Annie Marie Thane. Robert Longabaugh claimed throughout his lifetime that his mother, Thane, had been involved in a relationship with Harry Longabaugh, and further claims that the rumors that Etta Place was once a schoolteacher are confused with his mother, who was a schoolteacher when she became romantically involved with Longabaw, a.k.a. the Sundance Kid. Robert Longabaugh is the reason that the town of Marion, Oregon comes into question, due to his claim that it was in Marion that his mother taught school. In his claims, he stated that Etta Place became involved with Longabaw after his mother told him she was pregnant. However, the claims made by Longabaugh become very clouded and confusing, with dates that don't match up as he often cited facts that were inconsistent with earlier claims made by him, and he often changed his story. He even claimed that he was a pallbearer at Butch Cassidy's funeral, years after Parker was alleged to have been killed in Bolivia, and that Cassidy was buried in Spokane, Washington. Researchers have been unable to verify any of his claims. In researching his claims about his mother, there is some evidence that she did once teach school, but also some indications that she was a prostitute. There's been no evidence to support her having a half sister named Hazel Tyrone, aka Etta Place. Researcher Donna Ernst pointed out that Robert Longabaugh possibly was related to Harry Longabaugh, but it was unlikely he was Harry's son, and even less likely that he knew anything whatsoever about Etta Place. Research has also detected that Robert Longabaugh possibly was told by his mother that Etta Place was in reality her half sister. And that her real name had been Hazel Tyrone. The remainder of Robert Longabaugh's stories are believed to have been completely fabricated by him. There also is no evidence to support that Harry Longabaugh was ever in the Oregon area during the time frame when Robert Longabaugh alleged his mother began an affair with him. There's no mention of Annie Thane in any reports about the gang from the day, and Pinkerton detectives, who have historically been the best source for movements of gang members. Have nothing indicating a relationship with any woman other than Etta or Ethel Place after 1899. Robert Longabaugh died in a fire in Missoula, Montana on December 18, 1972. His death certificate lists his father as being Harry Longabaugh and his mother as being Annie Marie Thane. There is no record of his birth certificate. There were no other available documents to show any other connection to Longabaugh or Place other than his own claims. He's worth checking out though, all of you 1001 detectives. There's still considerable debate over when Place's relationship with Longabaw ended. Some claims indicate that Place ended her relationship with Longabaw and returned to the United States before his death. Other claims indicate that the two remained romantically involved and that she's simply tired of life in South America. By 1907, she was known to have been living in San Francisco, but after that, the trail runs cold. After Longabaugh's death, some believe that she returned to New York City, while other theories indicate she moved back to Texas and started a new life there. A Pinkerton report indicates that a woman matching places description was killed in a shootout resulting from a domestic dispute with a man named Matteo Gebhardt in Chubut, Argentina, in March 1922 that could very well have been on the ranch. Another report indicates she committed suicide in 1924 in Argentina. And another report indicates she died of natural causes in 1966. In 1909, a woman matching places description asked Frank Aller, U.S. Vice Consul in Antofagasta, Chile, for assistance in obtaining a death certificate for Longabah. Now that makes sense. She would have needed a death certificate to claim any property he might have left behind. No such certificate was issued, and the woman's identity was never ascertained. There have been various additional claims about her life after Longaboa died. One claim is that she returned to her life as a schoolteacher, living the remainder of her life in Denver, Colorado. And another story claims she lived the remainder of her life teaching in Marion, Oregon. There are also various claims that she returned to sex work, living the remainder of her life in Texas or New York or California. However, none of these claims has any supporting evidence. Author Richard Llewellyn claimed that while in Argentina, he found indications that Place had moved to Paraguay following the death of Longabaugh and that she had married a wealthy man. There were also rumors that Etta Place was in fact Edith May, wife of famous boxing promoter Tex Rickard, who retired to a ranch in Paraguay shortly after promoting the famous fight between Jack Johnson and Jim Jeffries in 1910. Ah, Jack Johnson, another story on my to-do list. See how easy it is to come by story ideas. Author and researcher Larry Pointer, author of the 1977 book In Search of Butch Cassidy, wrote that places, identity, and fate are one of the most intriguing riddles in Western history. Leads develop only to dissolve into ambiguity. Robert Leroy Parker, born April 13, 1866 better known as Butch Cassidy. As you already know, was an American train robber and bank robber, and the leader of the gang of criminal outlaws known as the Wild Bunch. As for Harry Longabaugh, the Sundance Kid, a coffee table book, Finding the Sundance Kid, Solving the Wild Bunch Mystery, was released just a few years ago. The book contains evidence that Wild West outlaw Harry Longabaugh, a.k.a. the Sundance Kid, lived out his life in Duchesne, Utah according to the authors. A history enthusiast and filmmaker has evidence which she claims will rewrite the story of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Marilyn Grace began her investigation into the claim that the pair of outlaws were killed in Bolivia, as portrayed in the 1969 film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, after watching a Nova documentary about the pair in 1997. I would leave work and go to the BYU library and I read everything I could get my hands on, Grace said. She said each piece of information fed her interest in the exploits of Butch, Robert Leroy Parker, and Sundance, Harry Longabaugh." She said the book by Parker's sister, Butch Cassidy, my brother, provided the claim that Butch and Sundance didn't die in Bolivia, but lived until at least 1925. At that point, Butch returned to his hometown of Circleville and visited with his family, according to the book. These guys did not die in Bolivia, Grace said. Working with a group of forensics experts, Grace started investigating the claims that both outlaws lived to an advanced age. In 2007, Grace met with Jerry Nickel, who told her he had long suspected his step-great-grandfather, William Henry Long, was actually Harry Longabaugh. Nickel helped finance the research, which resulted in the exhumation of Long's grave for DNA testing. The initial DNA test in 2009 didn't prove the theory, and the documentary Grace was working on in conjunction with the investigation had to be taken down. Our new team of 25 friends and family members of William Henry Long did not quit, Grace said. She said all of the evidence was in hand, with the exception of the DNA. They tested the mother, but they didn't test the father's side, Grace said. William Henry Long's bones matched Josiah Longabaugh, the Sundance kid's father. She said the group then did DNA testing on a living cousin to Sundance, and the DNA matched. Grace said that there is evidence that Sundance may have spent time under his assumed name with family in Loa and Fremont after the time he had supposedly died. We finally had the proof we needed to prove our case, Grace said. Robert Longenbaugh's different spelling but same family, DNA, gave us the final piece to our DNA mystery. She said the science is behind the claim being made that Sundance is in the Duchesne Cemetery. She said the research has resulted in the town of changing its welcome sign so that it says, the resting place of the Sundance kid. Grace and Dr. John McCullough have written a book detailing the investigation and its conclusions. The book's called Finding the Sundance Kid, and solving the Wild Bunch mystery. And now for the story on Butch Cassidy. In 2017, a new search was launched for the grave of Cassidy. It zeroed in on a mine outside Good Springs, Nevada. The dig managed to find human remains, but it did not match the DNA provided. In his Annals of the Former World, John McPhee repeats a story told to geologist David Love in the 1930s by Love's family doctor, Francis Smith, M.D., when Love was a doctoral student. Smith stated that he had just seen Cassidy, who told him that his face had been altered by a surgeon in Paris, and that he showed Smith an old bullet wound that Smith recognized as work he had previously done on Cassidy. In a 1960 interview, Josie Bassett claimed that Cassidy came to visit her in the 1920s after returning from South America and that Butch died in Johnny, Nevada, about 15 years ago, which would put that at about 1945. Locals of Cassidy's hometown of Circleville, Utah, claimed in an interview that Cassidy worked in Nevada until his death. William T. Phillip claimed to have known Butch Cassidy since childhood. In his book, In Search of Butch Cassidy, Larry Pointer speculated that Phillips was actually Butch Cassidy, based upon stories in Phillips' unpublished manuscript, The Bandit Invincible, and a resemblance between Phillips and Cassidy. However, in 2012, Pointer obtained a copy of the Wyoming Territorial Prison Mugshot of William T. Wilcox, a previously unknown associate of Butch Cassidy. Observing the similarities between the two men, he revised his previous theory and concluded that Phillips was in fact Wilcox, and not Butch Cassidy. Western historian Charles Kelly closed the chapter, Is Butch Cassidy Dead?, in his 1938 book, The Outlaw Trail, A History of Butch Cassidy and His Wild Bunch. By observing that if Cassidy is still alive, as these rumors claim, it seems exceedingly strange that he has not returned to Circleville, Utah, to visit his old father, Maximilian, who died on July 28, 1938, at the age of 94 years. Kelly is thought to have interviewed Barker's father, but no known transcript of such an interview exists. A second-season episode of the television series In Search Of in 1978 cast doubts on Kelly's conclusions, examining the claims and possible evidence for Butch Cassidy's return to North America during the 1920s. In a series of interviews with residents of Bags, Wyoming, a popular destination for the Wild Bunch during their raiding years, Cassidy was said to have visited for several days in 1924, driving a Ford Model T. Among the residents interviewed is town sheriff Ross Moore, who claims it was common knowledge locally that Cassidy did not die in South America, stating that his own grandmother saw Cassidy in 1924. In the episode, author John Rolf Burroughs recounts several interviews he reportedly conducted in the 1950s that support the claims of a 1924 visit by Parker to Bags, Wyoming. This episode also interviews Cassidy's sister. I watched a video interview recently with Butch Cassidy's much younger sister, Lula Parker Bettinson, who stated that Cassidy returned to the family home in Circleville, Utah, during that same period. She also says her mom told her where he's buried, but she's keeping it a secret. Bettinson states that Cassidy picked up his brother Mark Parker in a Ford automobile, then drove to the home of their father, Maximilian Parker, where Bettinson also lived. She reports the elder Parker having said to her, I'll bet you don't know who this is. This is your brother, Robert Leroy. Bettinson observes that her brother's life was full of regrets, particularly at having disappointed his mother so terribly, with Cassidy having reportedly stated, all I done is make a wreck of my life. Bettenson claims that Cassidy lived out his years in the Northwest and died in 1937, and that the family had agreed not to disclose his final resting place since they had chased him all his life, and now he's going to rest in peace. This story is also recounted by W.C. Jameson in Butch Cassidy, Beyond the Grave, referencing the 1975 book Bettinson co-authored with Dora Flack, Butch Cassidy, My Brother. Remember earlier I said that if you're going to find the answers, follow the relative trail? Nobody has done more research and interviews with those who claim to have known Butch Cassidy before and after his so-called death than Bill Bettinson, the great-grandson of Lula Parker Bettinson, Butch's much younger sister. He's been at it for 20 years, and if anyone has the answers, he does. And Bill has agreed to join us at 1001 Heroes to discuss just that. Tune in Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for our 1001 Heroes interview with Bill Bettinson. And he's got a lot to tell you. We hope you enjoyed Part 1, and we encourage you to join us for Part 2 coming next week, where we'll cover the lives and deaths of some of the West's most famous outlaws with a member of Butch Cassidy's extended family. We also ask that you drop by our brand new shop called the 1001 Store at Etsy the world's largest craft marketplace where we're getting busy offering some handcrafted items inspired by our show. I'm having a lot of fun with it and would appreciate your having a look. You can find some very unique gift ideas for that special person in your life and I'll be adding new ideas as we go so check in often. The link to the 1001 store at Etsy is in our show notes but I can tell you right now it's etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash shop The 1001 Store. Pretty simple. That's it for this week. Thanks for being such great fans. And don't forget to catch our other shows, 1001 Radio Days, where Johnny Dollar is doing gangbusters. 1001 Stories for the Road, where you get the real story on Captain John Smith and the Virginia Expedition. And 1001 Classic Short Stories, where Sherlock Holmes is solving a new case. It's lots of fun, and it beats TV hands down. A few recent reviews... This one called A Thankful Father. Believe it or not, my teenage daughters and I enjoy listening to these stories while making the two-hour drive to Grandma's cozy lake cabin in western Maryland. We enjoy discussing them afterwards and no doubt have bonded over these family-friendly stories. Pittsburgh Dad. That's New Ken Fan, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, Solid. Over time, I've developed a handful of go-to podcasts I enjoy listening to, and this one is a definite rock. I keep coming back to it again and again. An interesting and wide range of subjects will keep your interest piqued and you may find it hard to stop listening. A big thanks to John for all his work. That's PR Man, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, love it. I am so glad I found this podcast network. John Hagedorn is great. I love his voice and the way he can tell a story. I listen all the time and I'm sure you would too if you give it a try. That's max 1978. Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, a great collection of yarns. I love a well-told story, and this podcast delivers just that. Well-told, intricate, researched, and entertaining stories. I tip my hat to you, but can I ask for a few more Australian stories? And that one, from Steve ob 69 Apple Podcasts, Australia. And this one, great podcast, excellent podcast, very engaging stories, and awesome presentation can't stop listening. And that one from LWV 0362 at Apple Podcast US. And this one, Tip Top History Podcast. If you enjoy compelling stories from history, this is your podcast. Strongly recommended. And that one from Duck Bui. And that one US. Thank you all so very, very, very much for taking the time to sit down and do those reviews. I know it takes a few minutes to do, but it's greatly appreciated and it's a huge help for us in the rankings. Next week, don't forget, Bill Bettinson. Don't miss this interview. You're going to love it. This is John Hagedorn, host of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and we'll be back soon.